Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. The Fire and Water Network proudly presents JLU Cats. Hello and welcome to JLU Cast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, Cindy Franklin. And I'm Chris Franklin, and this episode is our Justice League Unlimited Season 2 Rap Party. We'll rank the episodes, talk about our favorite moments, lines of dialogue and characters, and cover your feedback from a season's worth of episodes at fireandwaterpodcast.com. So let's jump into it. Uh, now, if we thought last season was tough to rank, this one is almost impossible. The quality of this show is just astonishing. There's not a clunker in the bunch here, nope. I don't think. Nope. The Cadmus arc and the building momentum also makes it hard to pick out individual episodes as better than the previous one or a later one. But we'll try, and we have tried. Uh, I personally based a lot of this on rewatchability, sometimes just for key moments. Please keep in mind, even number 13 on this list is an above-average episode. True. Especially compared to, you know, Justice League Season 1 and Justice League Season 2, and even Justice League Unlimited Season 1. Mm-hmm. So this is really the show, and we'll get into that. Not that there's anything wrong with Season 3, but there's this is the show at high tide, really. It really is. So why don't uh, you start with your uh, rankings. I'll say, what was your least favorite episode? I would say my least favorite episode was Clash. And that's just because the realization of it, that the battle is never ending. There can never really be a resolution. It makes you realize that the fight will never be over. Our heroes can't stick to their principles and have any real hope of actually winning. Sometimes you have to get into the mud, and that is a shattering realization. Wow. Okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting that answer, one, or that reasoning, but, I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I see what you're saying, and that, that'll play into one of the, my other superlatives for this. Uh, I rank that episode quite a bit higher. Um, so my least favorite episode, I went with The Balance, just because... It was the episode, it doesn't deserve to be at the bottom, but something had to be. Right. Uh, I went with this one despite its ties to the Cadmus arc and Task Force X. The character bits with Wonder Woman and Shire were great, but it was not, and it was nice to see them bury the hatchet. But overall, this episode is just like kind of the least memorable to me. It's the least, I, I get it. Yeah. It's the least memorable of, of this, of this season. So what was your favorite episode? Okay, so my favorite episode was The Cat and the Canary. The interplay between Green Arrow and Black Canary, um, you know, how they get along. Um, But Dinah kicks all the butt. She proves that she's no damsel in distress. That's one of my big things that, you know, you generally get the damsel that, you know, all she does is either scream or faint or, you know, oh, some big strong man has got to save me. Um, As far as the other part of the episode is that asking for help with your mental health can be the most courageous thing to do. And there is no shame in asking for that. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that was really nice with, with Wildcat and everything, yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great episode. Uh, I went with the very obvious, Divided We Fall. Uh, it's the true finale to the Cadmus arc. It's one of Flash's greatest moments in any media, comics, TV, whatever. Uh, such a satisfying ending to a complex and morally challenging storyline. The creators didn't forget, though, that this is a superhero show, and they gave us a kapow ending. Yes. So that was my favorite. So 
we know what your top and bottom are, so what's your rankings overall? Okay, so you want me to go from best to worst or worst, worst to Worst to best. Okay. Yeah. So, 13 was Clash, then Task Force X. Wow. Um, Doomsday Sanction, The Ties That Bind, The Balance, Question Authority, Double Date, Flashpoint, Panic in the Sky, Divided We Fall, Epilogue, Hunter's Moon, The Cat and the Canary. And again, um, like you made the point, this was just just minutia details. There, there was not a lemon in the bunch. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm really surprised that you put Hunter's Moon up because Hunter's Moon's my least second <laughs> least Really? Favorite. Okay. Yeah, it, our lists are way off this year. Last year, they were fairly close. Yeah. But my list is The Balance, number 13, uh, 12, Hunter's Moon, 11, The Ties That Bind, 10, The Cat and the Canary, 9, Epilogue, 8, Flashpoint, 7, Doomsday Sanction, Six Task Force X, five Double Date, four Question Authority, three Clash. So yeah, way off. Oh uh, yeah. From yours, uh, two Panic in the Sky, and number one Divided We Fall. So we were way, right. <laughs> we're way apart on this one, which is fine. I mean, I looked at it as more like I was thinking like the overall Cadmus arc and like the the moral questions that were raised and the kind of. You know, the the journey we went through, like, feeling like, okay, is the Justice League really, are they really right? Are they wrong? And, I mean, there were parts where they were wrong in this right, season. Right, there was. And I think that's the reason I picked The Clash as my least favorite, because the realization that you had to have. Yeah. You know, and I mean, not that it, I mean, it was a fan fabulous episode, but what it made you realize. What it made you feel like. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I get it. Yeah, I get it. So, jumping into our usual superlatives. Power action feature. Uh, what did you have for your uh, power action feature that was your big kapow moment? I would say when Shaira pulls Krager's battery. Because mm. I'm just like, oh, dang. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, she shocks herself, but yeah, she, I mean. She powers through and takes care of it, you yeah, know, so. Yeah, that was that was a big kapow moment. And uh, we talked about it, though. I'm not sure the poor guy deserved that, though, really. I mean, he's just, he was so messed up from, yeah. you know. I mean, I know he was a bad guy and everything, but it's just kind of, he was pitiful, really. Yeah. You know. Uh, mine was, again, I'm being super obvious. Flash entering the Speed Force and stopping Luthoriac. From destroying the Earth at the in the, yeah. the big action Kapow finale, uh, that was just such a big epic moment. I had to pick that one. So rotating chairperson. Who did you have as your permanent chairperson? I would say Green Arrow because he is what we want our heroes to be, but his ideology is tempered with reality. What's actually attainable? Mm, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm all up in, you know. You are very introspective with this. <laughs> I'm more like, I like this because it was cool. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Um, I've all, Green Arrow was on my list as, as well. But I ultimately went with The Flash. Can you see a theme here? Yeah, uh, I, I got that. I got uh, that. The numbers don't lie, though, because he came up more than anyone else with between you and me and our guests mm-hmm. as a chair, the, the rotating chairperson. Okay. He, he actually outranked everybody as far as mentions. I will say that I was kind of tempted to give Superman a nod because this was a very challenging season for him. Um, you know, George Newbern did an excellent job uh, portraying Superman's conflicting emotions. Um, you know, we questioned Superman's actions through this. He questioned his own actions. 
But ultimately, he proved that, okay, he's not the Justice Lord Superman. Right. Um, you know, that he is, you know, morally sound. He is a good person. But you could see where it could happen. Yeah, and I, but I, I think, you know, but ultimately, I feel like Superman... He might get his due next season more. So I, I thought, okay, well, let's let's give this one to Flash. He deserves it. So. Okay. Justice League Communicator. So what was your favorite line, Justice League Communicator? I refused to pick a favorite. Every time I tried to narrow it down, I just argued with myself. And I just, just no, no, all of them. Okay, well, I, going <laughs> back, well, going back to what you said, even though you put it at the bottom, and I understand why you put it at the bottom, but I think Captain Marvel's resignation speech to the Justice League sums up how off track the team got this season at times, while also pointing to the fact that yes, Luthor was manipulating things in that direction too. Right, so it was a combination of them. You know, like them putting in a, a death ray in their in their headquarters and things like that, and sentencing Doomsday to the Phantom Zone mm-hmm. and morally questionable things that they did, and Captain Marvel saying, "You're just you don't act like heroes anymore." Look, Captain, I want to no more lectures. I called this meeting and I'm going to have my say. But my whole life I've looked up to the League. You were my heroes, every one of you, and you, you were more than a hero. I idolized you. I wanted to be you. Whenever I was out there facing down the bad guys, I'd think, what would Superman do? Now I know. I believe in fair play. I believe in taking people at their word and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Back home, I've come up against my share of pretty nasty bad guys, but I never had to act the way they did to win a fight. I always found another way. I... I guess I'm saying I I like being a hero. A symbol. And that's why I'm quitting the Justice League. You don't act like heroes anymore. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, Captain Marvel is how we want, as a kid, our heroes to be. And then getting to be an adult and realizing they just can't. It's not possible. Yeah. yeah. And I mean... They have to make some amount of compromises. They do. I mean, there's just no way. Yeah. But, so that's why I picked it. It was really hard between that and... Uh, I was up there with, you know, with, of course, with Batman and Ace from Epilogue. Yes. And the the Batman, you don't get to joke today, you know, when yeah. he said, I just, you know, risked my neck for you. And basically when Batman calls him out on sen- sentencing Doomsday to the Phantom Zone. Yeah. Um, so that was another one that was that was close to me, for me. Comic connections. So what did you, what was your favorite comic connection? In Divided We Fall, the Speed Force connection and the need for an anchor to bring him back. Oh, that's nice, yeah. Um, Because, you know, yes, you have the Speed Force connection, he's connected to everybody, and the need for an anchor to bring him back. And to me, his friends are enough to bring him back this one time, but we find out in the comics that he and Linda, she can bring him back anytime. Right. Because there's that, you know, that extra special bond between partners yeah and maybe we'll meet linda this coming season I, but i'm just you yeah, know i'm just that's... saying maybe yeah uh I, that one the only reason i didn't pick that one was because i've already picked it for everything else right so i went with the kingdom come callback in clash just because we've gushed over you know we've speed force and it was just so cool to see you know him do the shazam trick and fry yeah. superman you know so i thought that was a really cool uh close or third close second or third would be all the kirby stuff in the ties that bind okay. which was nice yeah Electricity is evil. 
Uh, electricity is evil. I think we're on the same page here. Remember, we actually got it. Galatea getting fried by Supergirl. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that might be the whole like the whole season. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So for, we actually agreed. Yeah, we agreed this time. Ooh. Yeah. No, I think we agreed on the next one too. Who was your? This is a new category on the the when we do the uh, season enders. What? Who was your favorite villain? The arc of Amanda Waller. She starts out as their adversary, and but then as you get to epilogue. You come to find out that they've worked together. I mean, girl, it took girlfriend like sixty years to get there, but you know, it just the arc of it and how she sees the need for the Justice League to where she was against them, and I mean, just that whole arc that you see over the course of her life. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting. Even though she has that arc, she becomes an ally, and you know, they work together against Luthor at the end. She still does very. Very questionable things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, overriding Warren McGinnis's DNA and hiring an assassin to kill, to kill the McGinnises. So I still have to consider her, in a lot of ways, a villain. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, you know, you know she's, she is a villain. You have the arc. I'm not saying she's that she an did. adversary. She's an antagonist. I mean, she's not, she has the best intentions, but, you know, it's like she's the. Would uh, that be the definition of an antihero? Yeah, she shows she's definitely an antihero. That's you know what sure. I mean. Yeah, she definitely is because she, you know, she's and she talked about sometimes the angels need to, you know, have to need a sword. Yeah, you know, she's the sword. You know, uh, so yeah, I thought that was uh, that was that was interesting. Yeah, but yeah, so we picked the same one. What about your favorite non-founding leaguer? Green freaking arrow. <laughs> Yeah, well, why, why did you pick him? Again, he is, to me, what a superhero is. He is not all pie in the sky. He knows he's going to have to get his hands dirty to get things done, but he still has humanity at heart. Yeah, I I almost picked him too, but uh, I thought, you know, we gave it to the question last year, and he could e- easily have taken it too, him or Green Arrow. But I really like the Huntress because, you know, she stepped up as an important, well-rounded character, even if she was kicked off the team. Yeah. She, you know, uh, even though her storyline initially was apart from Cadmus, in a lot of ways it was bringing up the same questions of, okay, what, you know, what can, a, what should a superhero do and what should they not do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you shouldn't outright murder people even if they probably deserve it. Right. You know, which is what she was out to do even if they've done horrible things. Uh, and I like the fact that, you know, even though she's this hard ass, you know, obviously she does, is in love with the question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their relationship was really, uh, you know, a great little addition to the show and one everybody remembers. So, yeah. So what were your overall thoughts on this season? This, I mean... So far, of all the seasons that we've done, this is definitely my favorite season thus far. Yeah. And it's one of those that it makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you shake your head. And so many, and so many times it happened all in the same episode. Yeah. So. I, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I mean I'll just, I'm just going to put it on the table. It doesn't get any better than this. I mean, there's, this is a high water mark. That's not to say season three isn't great, but the creators knew they couldn't go with this kind of deep, challenging storyline again, so they didn't even try. Mm -hmm. Next season is a lot more just fun. I mean, yes, there are some heavy moments, uh, but it it overall is more fun. It's more of a nod to the challenge of the Super Friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a level of story and character sophistication that other media adaptations can't seem to really pull off. It either comes 
uh, becomes too overly complicated, melodramatic, or dark and maudlin. I'm thinking of the Snyderverse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Bruce Tim, Dwayne McDuffie, you know, James Tucker, all those involved knocked this out of the park they this did. season. Uh, I mean, this overall is, you know, one of the best, uh, one of the best eras of any version of the DC characters. Uh, in this season in particular is the shining, you know, it, you know, I mean, some people might disagree, but I think overall, and I think that's the consensus is like, you know, and, I, and everybody's, everybody loves season three. They're glad they got it. But it's like, if they had to end in season two. You know, yeah, the epilogue episode would have been kind of a weird way to end it. But, but if you ended with Divided We Fall, that would have been a good ending too. Yes, you know, yes. So, well, I think that wraps up what we were going to say about season two. What we were going to say about it, but we're going to hear what you guys thought about it when we come back from this break and we'll talk about your listener feedback. My inheritance has cost me. The car and gadgets are nice. And I've almost gotten used to the smell in the cave. It's the criminals. Since my father died, they've focused their attention on me. Hey man, somebody killed this lady. And the people around me. My father's enemies have gotten more twisted with age, more violent and suicidal. Crashing this plane with no survivors. Because they know their inevitable end is near. They've seen Batman die. They've seen each other die. I can't believe they killed him. Yeah, man, things are getting really bad out here. The Riddler. This puzzle is far more than any mere game. Hmm? Dr. Death. You and I go way back, Batman. Two-Face. I still believe in Harvey Dent. All gone. Like the life I hoped for beyond this mask. Everything I have, everything I am, is because of him. I'm the Batman's daughter. I am the Huntress. And tonight... I'm hunting the man who destroyed my life. Join us as we talk about the OG Helena Wayne, the Huntress, at thehuntresspodcast.com. Reach us on Twitter at Huntress Podcast. You can email us at feathersandfoes at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and supporting the Ride On Network. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire and Water podcast network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team-ups. Marvel team-up. Yes. The brave and the bold? You know it. Marvel two-in-one. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents... Of course... Supervillain team up? Good idea. Youngblood X Force? Mmm, technically. FW Team Up, coming this summer only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, we're back with your feedback and we're going to run through. Now, these are just select comments. I didn't, you know, grab everybody's. I tried to grab a nice selection. I. You know, sometimes I didn't, you know, we're not going to read the entire comment. Uh, we had some great feedback. Of course, lots of thought-provoking episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've, we've got some differing opinions about some things, which I think is great. Uh, so, you know, you can check all these comments out at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Just go to shows, look up JLUcast, and just go through each episode 
and read the feedback. And of course, I responded to people in real time too. There, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, close to real time. Um, there were a few straggling comments I noticed. Oh, I didn't see anybody commented on that, so I'm apologized. I didn't write you, write you back. But so let's go through a few comments here. So Rob writes in, "Great episode." Plus Ryan. I was so happy that Green Arrow got as much to do on JLU as he did. He's always been one of my favorite characters. Just one appearance on Super Friends? One? And he's presented well here. Yes, obviously we agree. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. Uh, Tim Price writes in, I don't remember if you all mentioned this bit. When Wildcat is holding Arrow in the air, Arrow smiles and winks at him, which really sets Wildcat off. Now, on the one hand, this is a great sly nod to the audience that a trick is about to be played. But on the other, it's pretty blatantly a not-so-great gay-coded act intended to goad Wildcat to attack hard. Of course, I didn't think about this when the show aired. Now, it's not a great move. Thankfully, it's over quick and not dwelled on, except that a lot of Arrow's mocking throughout the fight was targeting Ted's masculinity, and this is the escalation of those taunts. It doesn't ruin it for me, but I do hope the scene isn't offensive in that light. See, I didn't really read it that way. I didn't read it that way either. I I didn't really read it that way. I mean... I guess, you know, when one man kind of winks at another, I mean, it's kind of like, and I mentioned that, like in Tombstone, when yeah. Doc Holliday winks at uh, uh, Thomas Hayden Church's character and yeah. starts the gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of like that. I mean, I guess you can kind of see as, you know, older tough guy Wildcat wouldn't appreciate some guy winking at him because back in his day, we didn't do that, you know, or I, I see that, but I didn't really, I didn't, I thought it was just him being a smart ass. Yeah. You know, but I mean, Tim obviously saw it that way, so other people might. So I thought it was interesting. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Captain Entropy writes in, Thanks for a great discussion of a great episode, Franklin's and Ryan. I especially appreciated the analysis of the addiction angle, and I think it was spot on. The DCAU really portrayed the best version of Ollie without misre- misrepresenting the character. That included his occasional flashes of deep insight, along with incidences of dunderheadedness. It's good that DC has some heroes that are consistently portrayed as admirable, but still flawed, just like heroes in real life, which is exactly what we talked about. Exactly what you were saying earlier, yeah. Yep. Noah Terranow wrote in, "Uh, all I have to add is something very, very nerdy. Are you sure that goon hanging out with Helgramite, Evil Star, Bloodsport, and Tracer is Amygdala? He really doesn't look much like him unless there's some other animated version I'm not familiar with. My best guess would be a one-off villain from Detective Comics number 480, The Gork. The story was written by Denny O'Neill, who credits this as an inspiration for his eventual creation of the Venom storyline that led to Bane, which is why I sought this issue out years ago, and I remember it so well. Yes, you are right. I was wrong. That is The Gork, not Amygdala. And we went through that back there. But can, can I record what you just said and have it as my ringtone? Yeah, I was. I mean, honest. I know you're in. You know, responding to Noah, but please. Yeah. Well, I have. You know, it's it's. I'm recording it right now. So it's, I know, but I want you to send it to me so that can be your ringtone on my phone. Okay. All right. I love you. Love you too. Now let's jump. <laughs> let's go move on to the ties that bind the Mister Miracle episode. Okay, so Marleek Richardson writes in, It was pretty rough when I found out that Ed Asner died, and it was on my birthday, no less. I'm sorry. Um, Somehow that makes me feel like I did something wrong. You didn't. Still, I enjoyed this episode immensely. Flash really gets to shine in this episode, even though it seemed like none of his allies would give him a chance at first. Yeah, definitely, yeah. This was, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's funny how you feel like like the celebrity dies around your birthday or Mm -hmm. something. That's like, yeah, but it's kind of... Kind of puts, uh, puts a damper on things, that's for sure. Uh, Chris Ferroni writes in, I never knew the fourth world characters all that well, but was limitedly 
limitedly aware of Scott's, Barda's, and Oberon's backstories. That said, Scott has got to have Bruce Wayne-type resources, where he can arrange to have a train locomotive flown in and dropped on him for practice. Uh-huh. By the way, if the train was being dropped from the sky, why did the stunt need to be performed on the train tracks? And did you notice that when the train whistle blows, Oberon first looks down the tracks behind him and then looks up? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was just part of the gag. Yeah. You know, the way to surprise us. Oh, no, it's not on the tracks. He's dropping it from above. But, yeah, so. Siskoid writes in, The Hunger Dogs are the poor people of Apocalypse, also called the Lowlies. I think I had, like, called the dogs they were riding the Hunger Dogs. Oh, and okay. that's where the goof came up. So I, I apologize. Yeah, that's... My, my my fourth world got off there a little bit because they do. It's kind of weird that they call them hunger dogs and there's actually giant hungry dogs they ride, you know. So, but anyway, uh, James Williams writes in. I've never understood why Mister Miracle isn't one of DC's top characters. I'd pitch him as a cross between James Bond and Doctor Who. Huh, I like that. Mm-hmm. So he's John Pertwee because mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was James Bond and Doctor Who basically. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> need a miracle? Meet Scott Free, the greatest thief in the galaxy. He can break in and out of any place, any time and space. The only thing he can't escape from. His past. I like that. Ditto for Barda. I'm visually disabled and haven't read comics in a decade and a half, so my knowledge isn't what it used to be. Has Barda ever had her own comic, miniseries, or even one shot? If not, that is a shame. You know, I don't know if she has or not, and I I, I should have looked at what people wrote in the comments. Off the top of my head, I think there was probably something. I know I know Jack Kirby wanted to do a spinoff of Barda. Maybe, maybe he... Maybe when Mr. Miracle was getting canceled or maybe when one of the other Fourth World books got canceled because Mr. Miracle outlasted them by several months, the rest of them. So maybe that was when. But I know there's like some sketches where he was proposing uh, Bard and Female Furies uh, series. Oh, okay. So, yeah, because they all ended up living on Earth with them. They all ended up in the original Kirby run defecting to Earth, although that was pretty much later just dropped. So, yeah. Okay. In Doomsday Sanction, and this was recorded with Dan Greenfield, Rob writes in, The Phantom Zone, like in a less serious way, Superman's interplanetary zoo is one of those concepts that you totally accept as a kid, but when you become an adult, you go, hold on. It's another reason why these characters, in my honest opinion, just don't work in the real world, and attempts to force them into it just don't really work in the long run. Yeah, there's a lot of Phantom Zone discussion here. This will, this will get interesting because, of course, this brings up the whole inhumanity of the Phantom Zone, and we're going we're, we're gonna to have a lot of discussion about that. So Brett Young writes in, Great show, Cindy, Chris, and Dan. This be, may be my favorite episode of the series. Nothing beats a Superman doomsday slugfest in an active volcano, Woo-hoo! especially with Soup's actually getting to win a fight for once. Maybe one day he'll get a rematch with that electrified manhole cover. <laughs> I have to say, I see Batman's stance a little different than you guys. It's hard to stomach his sanctimonious accusations towards Superman for sending a purely evil weapon of mass destruction into the Phantom Zone when earlier in the episode, Batman broke about 17 laws sneaking into Amanda Waller's home and accosting her while she's showering. Mm -hmm. Maybe he should climb off his high horse and worry more about that brace he's wearing. It looks like it stretched his neck out about a foot and a half. He's going to need a new cowl. (laughs) I like that. That's true. That was funny, yeah. Rob McCarthy writes in, I was for the darker tone of this series until Superman whooped ass on Captain Marvel for no good reason. Number one, I want them to be friends. Number two, it's a fight they always do. Number three, I question any universe where Superman dislikes Captain Marvel more than Captain Adam, or if he exists, Guy Gardner. 
Well, you know, we'll get into that when we get back to Clash. But I think Superman, you know, Superman was just in a bad mood in that episode to begin with. Mm. I mean, he he was kind of like, he was short-tempered with him to begin with. And I think I think the creators baked that into it because of the, the legal feud and the, you know, the fact that they do usually end up fighting. I think they were, like, skidding into that a little bit. So, uh, Captain Entropy writes in, This was an appropriately super episode, and I delayed listening to MASHCAST to finish it. Wow. Uh, I don't know if that sounds like a big deal, but for me, it is. Love the analysis all three of you offered, and Dan was the perfect guest. I will now offer my quibbles and musings, and I just he, I just listed one here. Uh, so you can read the rest there on the firewaterpodcast.com. Quibble number one. Chris, you referred to Superman's attempted homicide of Doomsday in the comics as murder. I know this that on a podcast, you don't have time to choose your words carefully, so I don't think we're really disagreeing here, but I still want to point out for the record, that killing in self-defense or the defense of others is not murder. Murder is unlawful killing. The superheroes we love could legally and justifiably kill a lot more people than they do. The creators have them find ways around it for valid in-story reasons, but also to keep from, from bringing us, the readers, down, man. Tom King accepted, of course. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have said murder. That was the wrong word to use. Um, and I said that in the comments. It, it You know, I... Superman didn't murder, try to murder, he, he didn't murder Doomsday in the comics, he literally, that was the only way he could stop him from killing, like, millions more people, uh, so he did what he had to do, and that's, that, that was the wrong word to use, you're right. Okay, Stephen Robinson writes in, in Donner's Superman 2, Jor-El dismisses the death penalty as barbaric, while somehow justifying the living death of the Donner versus Phantom Zone, which looks miserable. To Captain Entropy's point, Superman would have been legally justified in killing Doomsday as soon as he assaulted him. Hell, he even says, I came here to kill you. That would be enough to justify lethal force. Often, the no-killing rule is approached in a strange way, I think. The question is raised, why doesn't Batman kill the Joker, as it's a matter of Batman suffocating him with a pillow? More realistically, the question would be, how does the Joker survive long enough to get to Arkham? Cops frequently and justifiably kill criminals who are actively harming others. If the average mass shooter doesn't survive, it's strange that the Joker would. But obviously, this is all fiction, and we all need to let and we all need the Joker to keep appearing. Even Jokerized Tim Drake justifiably kills the Joker. No, Superman killing Doomsday in this episode wouldn't have crossed our legal lines. But ironically, the league sentencing him to the Phantom Zone without a trial or legal representation does. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if Superman just flat out killed him like he did in the comic books, where Superman died too, but then yeah, they would, we probably wouldn't be having these questions. Oh, they died fighting each other or something. Or Superman, you know, finally was able to stop him with a blow that killed him. You know, but that's that's a good point. All good points. Uh, Ian Fletcher writes in, okay, a few other thoughts. Number one, Batman is quick to judge on putting Superman-level threat into the Phantom Zone, but offers no tangible alternative. The government of the USA is 100% complicit in utilizing first Doomsday, then a nuclear weapon against the civilian populace in order to assassinate Superman. I'm fine with Batman being angry about it, even disagreeing, but it's a disservice that not one of the League puts Bruce on the spot to have him list the actual alternative, and if he did offer one, they could pull Doomsday out of the Phantom Zone and implement that deterrent. Uh, Number two, Superman has every right to defend himself from an assassin. Superman will attempt to kill galactic threats when there's no viable alternative. They weren't trying to bring the anti-monitor to justice. Multiple Superman were punching him until he was dead because he was erasing the universe. This goes for Darkseid, Zod, and all the other others that Superman felt it was appropriate to reciprocate their multiple assassination attempts. 2A, Batman has a strong code against killing, just like Superman. It drove Bruce's hard-act duplicate crazy to think he'd taken a life. 
It's an admirable trait, but it leaves the character as one-dimensional if not explored over time. These two in the Justice League have always sought for, pushed for, fought for better solutions than kill the bad guys. But that doesn't mean they can't be pushed to killing in self-defense. And hey, Batman didn't cry when Joker apparently died in the Best of Both Worlds episode. He, in fact, made a joke about it. Batman may have a coating against killing, but he's no saint. You can't radiate menace and fear like he does if you aren't actually capable of following through on those threats. So, yeah, some more good points there. Yeah, there was a lot of talk on, you know, about... Yes. We brought that, this episode brought up a lot of things to talk about. This was what I really loved about this season. Some great discussions in the comment section. Okay, Task Force X, Rob McCarthy. I really think the JLA having an army and being an army of superheroes is a theme. They're going wrong. I mean, the old series, the seven are worried they might go wrong, but the right answer is never more people and a death ray. <laughs> yeah, death, uh, the word death ray should be, you know, oh, wait a minute, are we doing the right thing here? Yeah. Uh, Chris Ferroni writes again, My favorite element to this episode is the flirting banner between Plastique and Deadshot. I was disheartened with Plastique's Let's call it capture at the end. I was hoping to see more of them together just for that. I agree that Deadshot was having a ball and loved it when he asked GL about Hot Girl. I never put my finger on it, Chris, but you're right. I realize now that I was rooting for Task Force X to accomplish their goal, and I have to say I did partly enjoy seeing the league get out swindled for a change. Yeah, it was fun. You yeah. know, <laughs> you found yourself rooting for the bad guys to a point, yeah. <laughs> Brett Young writes in, great show, Cindy and Chris. See, my name's first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've loved the Suicide Squad since Ostrander's run in the 80s, so this episode was right in my wheelhouse. It's a terrific Dirty Dozen slash Mission Impossible blend with a compelling group who are irredeemable. Is that copywritten, Shag? Um, but you can't help but root for them. I wish they had the squad show up again because they definitely had more story to give. I'm with you that the Justice League satellite employees make no sense. Who hires these people? Are they able to tell others where they work? Wouldn't that alone be a massive security risk? Where's that cornfield? How's the pay? Can we see one of their W-2s? Follow the money. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there was a lot of discussion. Of course, we brought that up. Yes. There's a lot of discussion about just what's going on with this these workers here. Uh, Stephen Robinson writes in, Chris, to your question about plastic, I think she's really most sincerely dead. If she lived, she would have talked either just out of revenge or to get a deal legally. Waller wouldn't have hesitated to eliminate her if there were any risk of that. We can safely assume she didn't live long enough to say anything of value to the League. Well, she might have hired Phantasm to come kill her. Yeah. You know, you know. Also true. Uh, Tim Price writes in, I wouldn't remember this offhand, but whenever I watch this episode, it may be my favorite of the entire series. Like, the entire series. So now I'll have to bore you with why. And I apologize if I'm repeating points Chris and Cindy already made. Now, is Flag augmented by Cadmus? If ordered to, he'd acquiesce. But I think not, because nobody else in this squad is enhanced, just supremely skilled with their weapons of choice. Flag himself is a weapon. Quick reference in the comics is the JLI number 13, Suicide Squad 13 crossover, which finishes with Flag and Batman brawling, and Flag fights until he drops, more than holding his own against bats. Anyone who can go toe to toe with Batman should not be underestimated. Yeah, that's true. I remember that. That was a good. That was a good crossover. Yeah, uh, Siskoid from our network, of course, writes in. I will say that I was disappointed that Plastique didn't have a Quebecer accent. The, the risk is always there that they'd go for a French from France accent. But since the casting is one of DCAU's greatest strengths, I wish they'd done gone for the more on model ethnicity. Yeah, well, you know, that's true. And I mean, of course, the whole thing. She was. Um, she was one of the, uh, her, her original appearance, she was like a, a, a Quebecer terrorist, uh, basically, against English 
speaking mm. Canada. Yeah, so that was she was an interesting character when she first appeared. Okay. This is about the episode The Balance. Rob writes in, I'm obsessed with the JLU commissary. Who runs it? Who makes the food? Is it open all the time? Is it free? Do the founding members make actual superheroes staff it on a rotating basis like monitor duty? I really wish they had done an entire bottle episode just set there. The menu choices must be so diverse in order to accommodate the various heroes' palates. Mutton and mead for Shining Night, fast food for Barry, barbecue for the vigilante. I have so many questions. I never really noticed how much Juliet Landau as Talia makes me think moose and squirrel. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> she definitely does. Yeah, that the the the, the, the whole commissary. The whole Justice League staff thing is just, it, it is it is an untapped, I mean, if the show had went longer, they should have done like a Lower Decks type yeah, episode, yeah. you know, like that. I mean, not not a whole spinoff, but like, no, the, no, no. like the Lower Decks episode of TNG that, that eventually begat the Lower Decks yeah. cartoon. Yeah, so animated series, yeah. A Captain Entry writes again, it's staffed by professionals, but leaguers can request access, access to the kitchen. If they want to do something special, once they complete the mandatory food safety training class, of course. Full meals are at 0600 to 0830, 1100 to 1300, 1700 to 1900, and 2300 to 0100. Batman's paying the bill, so he gets what what he wants. (laughs) I'll subscribe to that theory. Sure. Uh, Tim Price writes in, maybe this is obvious while not being explicitly said, but overthinking it. Flash covering for the bad scene in the cafeteria was perhaps less about his own embarrassment and more trying to avoid concerns of other leaguers about bad blood with two of the founders. So Flash took the hit deliberately to try and defuse the rumor mill about Diana and Shaira. It probably didn't work, but as always, his heart was in the right place. Nah, that's a good. I like that. I like that. It makes a little more sense that way. All right, now on to double date with Siskoid. Uh, Tim Price writes in, I can almost believe that Helena's parents faced Mandragore together because they knew if he only found the father, they'd immediately hunt down the mother too. It almost works as long as I accept that there's, they've left, that there's left out scenes of the killers being inept and dismissed looking for Helena as a possible witness. But since there's no such scene, it's a problem with the story. Um, Robert Smith writes in, I always thought that the Watchtower employee uniform were a shout-out to the Challengers of the Unknown original uniform. However, it does make sense as a subtle reference to the Wonder Twins. Here's a vitally important question to ask when you have Bruce Tim on the show. <laughs> I'd like, I wish, but I think if I had Bruce Tim on the show, I'd probably ask other questions before, yeah. before we did that. Uh, Noah Tarnow writes in, Great episode, though I'm heartbroken to learn that apparently neither of the Franklins nor Siskoid is a fan of the Sopranos. None of you called out that one of Mandragora's goons was played by Stephen Sharippa, clearly referencing his best-known role as Mafia Flunky Bobby Bacala Bacaleri on The Sopranos. Yeah, sorry. It's, I've never seen an episode. I've never seen it. I, I just, I tend to not, you know, I, I, that and Breaking Bad, I tend to not want to follow shows about bad people. I'm sorry. I know that maybe maybe I'm too much of a Pollyanna-type guy, but I, I want to follow people that I don't think are morally reprehensible. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm sure they're great. I, I just, as a rule, I just don't get into things like that. I don't like seeing bad guys made into heroes, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. That's why I have a lot of problem with modern day comics. They they take the bad guys and they make them so damn interesting and they follow them that, you know, it's like, well, you know, like making Lex, I mean, they did a lot with Lex on Justice League Unlimited, but they never made him like, you know, he's still an asshole, you know, I mean, he's still a bad guy and... I like, I, I want to keep him that way. You know, he can be interesting, he can have nuance, but I don't want to 
care about, you know, Lex's arc in a way, you know, that way. That's just me. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to see the bad guy's story. I get that, you know, but yeah. that's just, you know. That's just me. That's just me. I've never, it's always been a, it's always been a barrier for me to get into. It's like, well, you know, like, yeah, you know, like Walter White's a nice guy, but then he starts, you know, a meth lab. And I'm just, I, I know it's a great show and everybody's like, oh my God, I can't be living in watch Breaking Bad. No, I haven't. And that's why I just can't, I don't want to invest myself in a guy like that. That's just, again, that's. And he's Hal from, you know. It's Hal. I like him better as Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. Middle. (laughs) Okay, so, Alan W. Wright writes in, To me, the DCAU is pretty much satellite-era Ollie adapted to modern sensibilities. I think when people look at Superman or Batman's less-than-admirable attitudes from comics from the 1940s through the 80s, the blame falls squarely on the times. But Green Arrow is deliberately meant to be a jerk in a time when even the normal views of the day rightly seem horrible to us so more blame falls on the character of ollie and denny o'neill has admitted that back in the day women's rights were just something he didn't get i think jlu gets the balance absolutely right with him he's a jerk at times but not a monster yeah i think yeah exactly i i they 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 do a great job he is like the best version of the classic ollie and we've said that before and i think you're right yeah uh, Liz Ann Oswald writes in, the twist at the end that the bad guy is saving his son was cool, and the Huntress getting more screen time after this was cool. Weird, after she's off the team, she works with them a lot more. HR? For a superhero team? Uh, they didn't even know Captain Marvel was a kid, or what the question looks like without his mask. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. They did not do proper vetting. No, no, we were joking about that, yeah, but she's, yeah, the, the, they, the, 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 the Human Resources Department... Uh, I mean, they do have a cafeteria staff, though. So, you know, it's like, and they have the whole cornfield thing worked mm-hmm. out. So, yeah, again, that's, we need a Lower Decks episode of, uh, of Justice League Unlimited. That's, that should be a lost episode that they produce or something. So now we're on to your least favorite episode, Clash, with Brian Hyler. Again, it's, <laughs> don't get twitchy about it. <laughs> Rob writes in, four of the best words you can hear in a podcast. Guest starring Brian Hyler. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, Michael Kramer writes in, The flowers on Captain Marvel's cape are meant to represent moly, a sacred herb that Hermes gave to Odysseus to protect him from the spells of Circe. Oh, we've met her before. Mm -hmm. In World's Finest 254, Captain Marvel uses it in a confrontation with Satan to save the soul of Billy Batson's evil Uncle Ebenezer. Ebenezer mentions an herb called moly of the garlic family that's cultivated for its yellow flowers like the ones on the Marvel family cape. Of course, this was an E. Nelson Bridwell written story, so he has to explain everything, you know, which that's that's what E. Nelson Bridwell was wont to do. And uh, I like the fact that, you know, they tie in the holy moly to what's on his cape. Mm-hmm. So that was that was interesting. But yeah, uh, you know, later Jerry Ordway made them more like diamond patterns and stuff. But yeah, so. Okay. Cap- Captain Entropy writes in, I love this episode of JLU cast, but hate this episode of JLU. Not because it was bad, but because it was superb. It did a perfect job of showing the founding leaguers at their worst, especially Superman, but they all got suckered, and it was still entirely plausible. I thank God that real villains, with very few exceptions, aren't as smart as Lex, even ones that run for the presidency. Um, As I write this, some interesting things are going on a few hours south of me that demonstrate that. The whole episode reminds me that the fact that our adversaries are wrong about something or about as many things doesn't give us permission to throw away every rule we've ever lived by. I wish we could all understand that and remember it. Very well said. Very well said. And we'll leave it at that. (laughs) 
Uh, Pedro Perez writes in, My initial reaction to the episode was similar to that of many fans of the show. It was painful and torturous for me to see my hero Superman in this light. Upon repeated viewings, I've applied a different perspective to everything going on. Many detractors of Superman criticize the character for being too invulnerable. But episodes like this present the perfect counter-argument to that. His heart and his humanity can be exploited. Luthor can create whatever battle suit and perfect clone or super weapon he desires, but when he goes for the Man of Steel's heart, that's when he really tears down our hero. If you'll indulge me a bit, I've always been a fan of the dichotomy between the, t the two foes. Lex Luthor, the Earth-born mortal, is all too capable of becoming emotionally detached from the concerns of the common man in his quest for power and domination. Yet Kal-El, a foreigner from space, whose powers and physiology give him an excuse to renounce the Terrans around him, instead embraces the humanity around him and within himself. When conflict ensues and inevitably escalates between the two, Luthor ironically becomes the less human of the two. I could never articulate this when I was young, but my exposure to reprints of old Silver Age Superman stories always made that point clear. I'm so glad Dwayne McDuffie was added to the creative team. His understanding of the character of Superman enhanced my enjoyment of this show. That's really well said. It is. And that's a really great take on Lex and Superman. And I know there's been, over the years, there's been writers trying to figure out, you know, they now they've made Lex a xenophobe, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like aliens, you know. And, and then, you know, that's the direction to go in. But I, I really like the fact that you're like, you know, Superman, Lex is completely human, but is inhumane and inhuman. And Superman's an alien, but is, way, is the most human person around. And, you know, and of course, that comes from his upbringing and everything. That's, that's great. Great job, Pedro. That's, that's well said. Stephen Robinson writes in, John C. McGinley voices the Fox News-style host, then intended as a Bill O'Reilly riff, who interviews Lex, so that justifies his only providing the single line for the Atom. I thought that was clever. Oh, that's something we missed because we talked about John C. McGinley. Like he, the Adams, like got one line when mm -hmm. he comes and checks the the so-called bomb in the city. So yeah, there you go. So next we have Hunter's Moon with Ranger Gord Tolton as our guest. Gene Hendricks writes in and says, "Just how do you keep your socks organized if you don't fold them?" And then there's this this long thing back and forth about folding socks because of them joking about Green Lantern folding his socks and everything. So. Yeah. Um, Siskoid writes in, Seven Soldiers fan, check. Hot Girl fan, check. Vixen fan, check. And I didn't even dislike her Wolverine look. <laughs> and then there was a lot of discussion about that, about her, you know, Justice League Detroit Wolverine haircut. So, uh, Chris Ferroni writes in, All I have to say is that Green Lantern has some nerve telling Mari that PDA in the Watchtower is unprofessional. Wasn't that him getting busy with Hot Girl in the Medical Bay at the end of Wild Cards? Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. Yes, you're right. Um... Captain Entropy writes in, Thanks for a great episode, Franklin's and Ranger Gord. By our modern Earth, Western civilization understanding of intelligence collection and war, Hot Girl just isn't that bad, while her Thanagarian masters are terrible. That said, the Gordians are even worse, and the Justice League should help the Thanagarian resistance just to show that Thanagarians what right looks like. You know, he brought up, a, I like that. They should have showed the Justice League coming to the Thanagarians and saying, okay, you try to destroy the Earth and you were wrong, but we're going to try to help you because, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of Thanagarians that aren't, you know, the whole race, the whole yeah. population of Thanagar is suffering. And they shouldn't, you know, you know, they should help the, those people out. That would have been a great way to go with that, but instead... That's throwing the baby out with the dishwater. Right. Instead, they go, we got a different storyline for Hot Girl next mm -hmm. season, which is good, but, you know, it's, it's a shame... It, Really, this is the last, this season, we don't really touch on a lot of the Starcross stuff anymore, unfortunately. So, Our next episode is Question Authority. Rob McCarthy writes in, A multiverse 
should kind of throw A is A into A is A, except in the universe where A equals a warthog. <laughs> Number two, great, great question story. Number three, Captain Adam can shoot green kryptonite blasts, right? Yes, he can. That's what we find out later. In the comments of this time, weren't the question and the cre- creeper both ex-boyfriends of Lois? She likes Ditko. Uh, I don't know. Were they? I I can't remember if that was... Because Vic Sage was a reporter and uh, Jack Ryder's a reporter. So maybe Lois was supposed to have dated them at some point. I don't know. I don't know. You know, she dated Bruce Wayne in the animated universe. So who knows? Okay. Chris Ferroni writes in, This is one of my favorite episodes, specifically because of how well written it is. As you pointed out, Chris, there is just enough lighter elements to keep it from being too dark. Extremely well balanced. I, too, would have liked some follow-up on what happened to the Justice Swords. Questions seem to think that the video he saw was from their universe. So if the original seven Justice League members didn't know it existed, how exactly did Cadmus get a hold of it? Perhaps, as you said, the Justice Swords were extradited back to their universe, and as part of that extradition, Batman had to hand over key evidence? Possibly. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to point out. In the list of folders you mentioned the name... Stratagem 5. If you recall, Brainiac used the term stratagem with Darkseid when they captured Superman in the episode Twilight. Perhaps a bit of foreshadowing? Hmm, maybe. Yeah, because, you know, uh, Brainiac kind of showed up at the end there, so yeah, possibly. Uh, Captain Entry writes again, regarding cross-service transfer, that also happens. We talked about Captain, we talked about Eiling being in two different kind of uniforms. The bureaucratic rules of how to do it and what's possible change constantly depending on needs of the services. I have one friend who's been Marine Corps, Navy, and Air Force Reserve. We tease him about his indecisiveness. It doesn't happen to generals, though. By that time, you're too far in. It's probably easier to change the billet to the service he's in if you really need him there. And you're right, Eiling was wearing Army Green before. Let's chalk it up to either different rules or different uniforms in the DCAU. And we can't forget the unwritten rule. There's a waiver for everything. If they need it bad enough or someone high enough up wants it to happen. A few more thoughts. Soup didn't ask anybody to tail the question because the only thing Superman could possibly do to convince the question that he was worthy of trust was to trust the question. That's a good point, too. Yeah. Kudos on discussing Brobdenagian. It made this old English major smile. Well, I'm glad, you know, I can barely pronounce it, so I'm glad it made you smile. Well, I couldn't. I had made Chris read it. Yeah. So there you go. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, Flashpoint. Brianna writes in, I have been a fan of your show for a while and I love the podcast about one of my favorite shows ever. I have an IG account based on the Justice League. Like, trust me when I say you guys are my podcast because it's good to hear other people talking about the Justice League animated series. I wanted to make some notes on the identification numbers for the main Justice League members. Batman 001, very likely due to being the very first in the DCAU and also being the one who financially founded the Justice League. Superman 002, He is the second major from Justice League character to have its own show in the DCAU. It is also confirmed in Flashpoint that he is 002. Wonder Woman 003, as confirmed in the balance, she is 003. Manhunter 004, in Dark Heart, it is confirmed that he is 004. Green Lantern 005. He isn't confirmed, but he certainly isn't any other number. I also found it ironic that he is the fifth person to speak when the team goes on the Watchtower for the first time. Flash 006, he is confirmed in the Great Brain Robbery to have this identification number. 
Shaira, Hot Girl 007. She isn't confirmed, but it is very fitting that she would be 007 due to her being a double agent for the Thanagarian Empire and the Justice League. Oh, she's a spy. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, this episode is so good. I hope you guys can cover the Justice League Infinity comic. It is a good story after the finale of the JLU. I'm a big fan of the show, and please continue to do. I want to make a retraction or modification on Superman. His identification number is not confirmed in Flashpoint, but instead is confirmed in Hereafter Part 2. So that makes him the first League member to have a confirmation among the original seven about the identification numbers. Yeah, that's when he's on the Watchtower in the future and access, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's great, Brianna. Thanks for writing in, and uh, thanks for clarifying all that. That's really great. We, we've been talking about that. We've been trying to figure it out. Yeah, you know. and you did the homework, and we really appreciate it. And thanks so much for letting us know that you enjoy the show. That's great. Uh, Tim Price writes in, This storyline was so good. In every episode, you can feel the intensity ramping up. It's so fun to rewatch along with y'all. Yes, I say y'all unironically. Hey, we say it all the time. Uh-huh. Superman has trouble fighting captains. Uh, he should watch out for Captain Kangaroo and Captain Caveman. And Captain America, JLA Adventures number 3, a heart-stopping moment every time I reread it. Oh, yeah, that's great. Here's a crazy thought I had while listening to you discuss the League's argument about Cadmus and the government. What if the authorities hadn't kept Cadmus secret? I get the narrative reason, but it also could have been a project that was somewhat public, such as introducing it as a program to combat supervillains, like, we appreciate the leagues, but we need to be prepared in case they're not able to respond in time, and then start spinning the league's questionable moves as, we trust you, but we can't afford to blindly trust you. Then the story could be even more of a quandary about which side is in the right, because the public would easily be split between those with hero worship and those who think they're too powerful. And by being public, the league... One just attack and shut it down. Visibility would shield Cadmus from open battle with the League. Yeah, that would have been an interesting way to yeah. go. That would have been a really interesting way to go. Okay. Ward Hill Terry writes in, Sometimes when I listen to this podcast, I get confused because some characters don't speak or behave the, behave the way they did when I was reading comics. Sometimes I get frustrated at characterizations. Sometimes I don't get it at all. Number one, the question. He attempts murder based on a pattern of, one incident on a parallel world. Murder. Sure, it's dramatic, but it's a criminal act. Yeah, Ward Hill Terry wasn't real happy with the season. <laughs> we'll get into that as we go along. But I will say, though, that Ditko even had the question leave two uh, criminals to basically drown in a sewer because, yeah, because Ditko, because mm-hmm. objectivist beliefs. So uh, I'm not really sure the question wouldn't just kill somebody. But, you know, that's that's my take on it anyway. So next up, we had Panic in the Sky with our special guest, Dr. Ange. Michael Kramer writes in, I always felt that when Jon Stewart said, we can't let that stop us from doing our job, we aren't here to be liked. We're here to make the world a safer place. Instead of Superman saying, how are we doing so far today? I wish Flash had been on hand to say, that's probably what the Justice Lords told themselves every day. Good point. Mm -hmm. And I think Jon might be probably the closest to his Justice Lord, you know, his doppelganger. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, yeah. Ward Hill Terry writes in again, Grr, here's my rant for this month. Okay, maybe the Justice League can justify that it needs to have this ultra-destructo super weapon. Sure. But why does it have to be in operating condition and frickin' aimed at Earth? Leaguer number one. And that's why we need to have this horribly destructive weapon. Thank you for voting to agree with me. Leaguer number two. 
It still seems dangerous to be sitting here all plugged in with the safety off. How about we disable the power mechanism and put those pieces in another room where they'll be accessible if needed? Also, let's aim it away from the planet where all our families live. Grr. Oh, well, it's always nice to hear Ange. <laughs> I see his point. I, I really do. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, that's, I mean, the Justice League was wrong to have, I mean, that's ultimately the thing. They were wrong to have this this weapon. And yeah, so yeah. Stephen Robinson writes in, continuing that thought, there's also the implication that the JLU set up a weapon of mass destruction against the wishes of the U.S. government's president. That would otherwise be considered an act of war. No wonder the president supported Cadmus. Another mm. good point. Yeah. Chris Ferroni writes in, Panic in the Sky and Divided, Divided We Fall are my number three and number four favorite episodes of JLJLU for many good reasons. But the one thing that I always come back to in this episode is Batman's reaction to surrendering to U.S. custody. He tells them clear, to clear their own names and not wait on the sidelines for someone else to do it. Yet, that's exactly what he does. You can make the argument that he's clearing his own name, but as he reminded them and us all, he's a part-timer. Sounds like old Bats is playing fast and loose with the definition of part-timer. I wonder how Superman would have felt if, after vowing that the Justice League would pay for all the damage he and Captain Marvel caused to Lexor City in the episode Clash, Batman responded with, uh, you know I'm a really part-timer here, Clark. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, good point. Now we're on to the big Cadmus finale, Divided We Fall, with our special guest Steve Givens. Michael Kramer writes in, Like Steve, I noticed on the Justice Lord Flash that his lightning emblem went in the same direction Wally's does. However, this is also true of the original Reverse Flash as well. As with his animated counterpart, Thawne's lightning also pointed in the same direction as Barry's. I had always assumed that it would actually point in the opposite direction, as it often does today. But that particular detail wouldn't become a standard feature on Reverse Flash's uniform until Jeff Johns created the second generation Reverse Flash Zoom 2 Hunter Zolomon, Edward Thawne wouldn't adopt the detail until after he was resurrected in Blackest Night. So, well, there you go. Okay. Noah Tarno writes in, I'm glad you highlighted the Flash's heroism as the centerpiece of the episode. The JLU version of the Flash might be my favorite interpretation of the character ever. I love the idea of the not-too-smart, boorish clown who is nonetheless brave and knows right from wrong. In the real world, heroes aren't always level-headed paragons of intelligence and strength. Often, they're just well-meaning jerk-offs. It's very inspiring to know someone can save the day, even if they're far from perfect. This is something I absolutely love about JL, JLU, and all great Justice League stories. The richness of characterization, the complexity of motivations. And this episode absolutely nails it. Yeah, good. Very, very well said. Tim Price writes in, great coverage of this episode, and always a treat to have Steve on the show. I have my my one odd thought, and I'd like to hear everyone else's thought. Would Superman have acted the same if the Justice Lords had not come to their Earth? Lord Superman made his decision without encountering another version of himself first. But JLU Supes has the benefit of seeing the results of such an action. So what do you think? Yes, I have my own answer, but I'd rather not color any responses either way. And I'm a stinker. Um, I I think this, I think the, I see what you're saying, but I think the point of this episode was to show that... Uh, our Superman would have never gone there. He's not that guy. He's not that character. Um, I, I, you know, and, and I like that. I like that. You know, okay. You know, I, and 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 I, and it's partially because I'm sick to death of evil Superman. Mm-hmm. It's just so overdone, and I'm just tired of it. That you know, this Superman would have never went there. He never. He's never going to become that guy. He might. The thought might cross his mind, but he's always going to pull back from doing it. 
What do you think? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope, you know. Yeah, I got I hope you. So. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ange writes in, great episode of the podcast covering a great episode of the show. For me, the standout moment is Batman holding Wonder Woman from stopping Superman. This is Superman's decision to make, and I'm sure Batman knows his friend won't kill, but nothing is 0%. He could have. The thing is, this whole season has been Superman wrestling with his role. Trashing Captain Marvel, hating Luther, breaking into Cadmus, he has walked a fine line, and he has had his doubts on what he would do. As the question says, what would Superman do if the government was Luther? If Diana stops him, he won't know what he would do, and those doubts would linger, and that could be just as devastating. I've always thought that if she stops him, he still wonders, and my guess is if that doubt is still out there, that he keeps the JLA disbanded, worried about the Army. Great discussion. Love the Speed Force edition. Always good to hear Steve talk about the Flash. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if he, you know, he might have kept the league disbanded if he wasn't sure that, okay, we're doing the right, we're, we're back on track, you know, I know now what I would do and what I wouldn't do, so yeah. Uh, Brett Young writes, great episode, Cindy, Chris, and Steve. I've been watching the show as your podcast goes along, so a lot of this is new to me. Divided We Fall is definitely my favorite to date. Couple thoughts. I thought the best name for the Brainiac Lex combo would be Brex. It's short to the point and makes him sound like the preppy bully in an 80s comedy. Oh no, Brex gave Flash a wedgie at the prom in front of everyone and made him vibrate out of existence. (laughs) I love Batman holding back the team from interfering with Superman's decision on whether to kill naked Lex. But Soup's Maybe lower your arch enemy a bit so you're not face-to-face with Luthor's favorite test tube. Oh, my! <laughs> maybe maybe in that moment, Superman realized, oh, now I know why Lex is so angry and always has an inferiority complex. Mm. Mm, yeah. I can't help but laugh at the reaction to Superman saying they've decommissioning the Watchtower. You can see some of the Watchtower staff looking at him like, what the hell, man? I've got rent to pay. Do we get a letter of recommendation? Are superheroes on LinkedIn? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Green Arrow has a great moment telling truth to power, my favorite DC character. Finally, I'll be dipped is short for I'll be dipped in shit. So, yeah, I kind of thought that too. Keep up the great work, and any chance you'll pick up the the old Brave and the Bold animated series after JLU is done, uh, that's... Been on the table. That's on the table. We're not 100% certain. There's some other things I'd like to do, but, you know, we're, we're thinking in that direction. We'll see. We'll see. So, um, our next episode is Epilogue, and Tim Price writes in, You both are absolutely right, but I'm more right. I always remember that. Anyway, um, the black and white scenes come across as flashbacks, not as scenarios in Terry's head, especially when there's a scene as detailed as Terry in the Future League fighting villains. Why would that be part of Terry's imagination? Regardless, there should have been better visual or narrative cues for us viewers. But aside from that, I absolutely love this episode. Bruce comforting Ace, Amanda coming clean with Terry, and Terry's final scene with Bruce. And that line from Amanda, I can't even remember what this pill is for. Oh, right, Alzheimer's. She's joking with him, enjoying the irony of forgetting about her Alzheimer's pill because she's an old lady and has fun because why not? It's that contrast of making us smile, the big revelations, and the moments that make us cry. Almost perfect. Mm, yeah, it is, it's, it, there's a lot of good in that episode. But there's some people that... that Went to the other side with this one, too. Chuck Coletta says, Although I'm a fan of nearly every aspect of the classic Bruce Tim animated DCU, I always believe this episode was a mistake. Turning Terry into Bruce Wayne's son clone is a step too far for me. I feel it diminishes Terry overall, as there's no need to connect him biologically to the Wayne DNA. 
The world may need a Batman, but must he always be a Wayne? The desire to replicate Bruce's DNA, sorry Warren McGinnis, smacks of arrogance rather than a noble cause. The plot of this episode also has a distinct echoes of Ira Levin's novel The Boys from Brazil, 1976, about a Nazi plot to clone Hitler. In the book, the Nazis attempt to have the clones' lives echo the Nazi leader to ensure they will share psychological traits. This is especially apparent in the near murder of Terry's parents. Overall, the, the episode is well done, and the callbacks to Batman Beyond are fun, but the overall plot seemed flat-footed to me. Uh, you know, like I said, I go back and forth on this one. I know, so. you do. Captain Entropy writes, Cindy and Chris, I very much enjoyed both the JLU episode and the JLU cast episode about it. I was nodding along throughout at your observations and insights. I wasn't surprised at Waller's ruthlessness, as I think it's her defining characteristic, but I was happy to see that she repented and sought redemption through faith as she got older. I agree that it seemed like a natural outcome. I will add that another factor in Miss Waller's failure to ensure legacy for other heroes may have been that the other key heroes had legacy aplenty. Supergirl, possibly Superboy, one or more Wonder Girls, Impulse, Green Lanterns, and Warhawk, etc. Hard to say what transpired in the interim years of the DCAU future, though. Between JLU and Batman Beyond, I mean. Yeah, well, that's true. But we do find out that Supergirl, spoiler warning, is off the table. Yes. But, you know. At this point, we don't know that. We don't know that, though. Uh, Chris Veroni writes in, Chris, I agree I thought the cut scenes were flashbacks as well, but I interpreted them as having taken place a year or two prior to the live events. My interpretation was that Terry realizes he has Bruce's DNA, as he described. He has an altercation in the Batcave when he confronts Bruce about the truth. He stews about the situation for a while, a month or two, and breaks up with Dana because he doesn't think he is his own man anymore. He eventually reconciles with Bruce and Dana and gets to the point or he wants to marry her, but there's still the, the lingering doubt about who he is and why he has Bruce's DNA, so he goes to see Waller for some answers. After the, his visit, he's convinced on where he goes from there. Well, that's a good way to go, but apparently, you know, it really isn't a flashback. It's That's the way McDuffie said, they're not flashbacks. So, I mean, that's a good way to reconcile it in your head, but apparently you don't need to because they're not flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> they just come across that way. Um, Siskoid writes in don't know what I made of it at the time honestly I didn't realize it was supposed to be a finale and I'd never watched Batman Beyond so it probably felt like some kind of Armageddon 2001 or something I've seen all of Batman Beyond since of course enough not to like the idea that he has to be a clone of the original I tend to not like biological destiny stories see the rise of Skywalker yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's, I think that's one reason why the episode epilogue wasn't as high up on my list because I'm kind of on a, yeah, I don't know if they should have done that thing now. <laughs> so that'll do it. Uh, thanks to everybody who wrote in. Uh, I think we read a comment from everybody that wrote in. If we didn't, I apologize. I meant to. Lots of great discussion there. If you want to read the rest, please, again, go to firemwarepodcast.com, go to shows, and just go through our episodes and read all those comments. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club Podcast, David Capoon, and Rocket Dan Johnson, who specifically support JLUcast. Could you guys help us with the grand opening of the Metro Tower? We need some people to park cars. Good luck with the Batmobile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everyone who listened to this past season. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. We and our guest had about this great season of JLU. We're looking forward to the more fun and a bit more lighthearted season three. We have some special guests line up on certain episodes that I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from. But having said that, 
I'm a bit sad to announce that due to my new job. Which, yay! Yeah, I, <laughs> in case you guys didn't know, I was out of work for six months. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fun. Um, and uh, I'm glad that's over. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, but we're going to have to change our frequency from bi-weekly to monthly on JLUcast. So, you know, you were getting... We were, for the most part, we were doing two episodes a month. Mm-hmm. We have to go back down to one episode a month. Uh, but this just means the show will last longer because right, we're in the final right. season. So, you know, eh, just you got the show longer that this yeah, way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, and we want to make sure, I don't want to rush through it. I want to make sure we, it's, it's done well. It's done well, you know, that we have, we've got, you know, time to get with our guests that we've got lined up. We don't have guests for every episode, just like last season. But we do have several episodes with guests. So I want to make sure that, you know, we've got time to record and put the episodes together properly and give it a lot of, give it our, give it our all and not just rush through it. Uh, but we will be back, fingers crossed, next month with the season three premiere episode titled I Am Legion. And it's not about the Legion of Superheroes. It's about that other Legion. So, <laughs> <laughs> so happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and have a happy new year to everybody. See you then. JLU Cast is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide and is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue Mommy and Daddy. Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at firewaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for JLUcast and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to JLUcast. thing I've ever had to say. I'm guilty. We're guilty of the sin of hubris. We had the best of intentions to be Earth's guardians, to keep you safe, but we failed you. We looked down on the world from our tower in the sky and let our power and responsibilities separate us from the very people we were supposed to protect. No one should ever be afraid of us. For that reason, we're decommissioning the watchtower. The energy weapon up there is already gone. We're taking down the station as well. There's more. We want to thank the members of the Justice League for your courageous service. But in the future, you'll all have to act as independent agents. We're not going to be an army anymore. As of right now, we're disbanding the Justice League. This is the end. Says who? You remember what we did yesterday? We saved the world again. You don't think that has any value? Well, think again, pal. The Justice League goes on, with or without you. Look, nobody can question your service or commitment to making things better. If you're quitting because you think you've already done your fair share, fine. We'll throw you a parade. But if you're quitting because it's easier than continuing the fight, then you're not the heroes we all thought you were. The world needs the Justice League, and the Justice League needs you, Superman. Thank you.